is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. So, are the new tax credits too confusing for the EV market? I'm going to go ahead and say yes for a lot of people on that because a lot of people are complaining. We're going to go in-depth to try to clear it all up. Renting might be better than buying a home, but that math might not add up in the long run. If you have any trouble sleeping, you might want to avoid a certain type of sleep aid that you can get very easily. We'll explain what and we'll explain why. We will start, though, with the EV tax break confusion. And here to try to clear things up for us is Ingrid Malmgren, Policy Director for Plug-in America, which advocates for electric vehicles. And I know, Ingrid, California has a new mandate put on place by the Air Resources Board last year that states... You know, they want to be electric by 2035 with light trucks and cars sold in this state. It's super ambitious, but people are trying to go EV. But this tax credit available right now, it keeps changing. It's been reduced. It's causing confusion over which models qualify for the federal tax credit of up to $7,500. Can you straighten it all out and give us the bullet points of what we need to know? Sure, yeah. So you're you're absolutely right. The tax credits, the federal tax credits for the new clean vehicles are definitely complex. Um, and they keep changing. They're expected to, there's a rulemaking in process right now. And so when that's finished in May, um, they'll review it and there could even be more changes. So, um, but it doesn't have to be difficult for a consumer. There's really three things you need to know as a consumer to know whether you can get a tax credit on the vehicle you want. So the first thing to know is you need to know your income because there are income limits for the federal tax credits, for the new clean vehicle tax credits. Um, what? So that's the first thing, you need to know your income and whether you qualify. The second thing you need to know is that you need no need to know where to find the answers. And um, you can check out pluginamerica.org, our website, where we have links to all the information as well as um, frequently asked questions. And also fueleconomy.gov. The federal um, government put together a really helpful website that you can go on and you can see all of the eligible vehicles, what the make, the model, the years, the vehicle types, the credit amounts, um, what the MSRP limit is, and whether they meet all the qualifications for the tax credit. And it will tell you exactly what amount of tax credit they are eligible for. So that's the second thing. You need to know where to look. And then finally, keep in mind that for vehicles, if you don't, if the vehicle you want doesn't qualify for the tax credit, or you don't, your family makes too much money, then you could also consider leasing. A lot of manufacturers are passing on the lease, the tax credit through their leases. So there's a third option um, to make the tax credit accessible. All right. Um, 
so that is, so so that's that's good for the consumer. They got uh, resources they can get to. But you know, it's not just rules for consumers. It's also uh, rules for the uh, automakers themselves. They've got some arcane uh, requirements, and and some of them use those arcane requirements to kind of uh, shift their own markets a little bit. I'm thinking of uh, some of the other automakers are having to uh, stop production on gas powered cars because they need to have more of a percentage of their lineup to be EV. Whereas Ford, on the other hand, has the right percentage, so they're able to keep making a gas-powered Mustang, for example, but only because of these EV rules that are on automakers. Uh, Are automakers having a problem with that, or do they kind of like it because it lets them shift the market the way they want it to go? So um, there are a lot of automakers out there who are really, really committed to electric vehicles. They see that EVs are the future. They've committed great sums of money into Um, battery development and into building EVs. And so there's new EVs coming online all the time. Um, So I would say that the tax credits really support this. Um, Yeah, so I think that in general, I think that um, automakers are generally really supportive of the shift to EVs. I think that change is hard for everyone sometimes, but um, a lot of the OEMs already have commitments to be 100% electric within a certain time frame. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Ingrid Malmgren, Policy Director for Plug in America. That's a group that advocates for electric vehicles. Right now, we are going to take a look at this. Another regional bank here in California is in big trouble. First Republic Bank stock sank again today as worries grow that it could fail. Dante Tassetti is a Bay Area-based banking expert in regulatory compliance and risk management. And Dante, First Republic Regional Bank, it's it's regional, but it does have 93 offices eleven sta- in 11 states, primarily in New York, here in California, Massachusetts, and Florida. If a bank like this does collapse, what would the ripple effects look like nationwide and even globally? Uh, thanks, Elsa and Rob, for having me. Yes, it would it would have an impact on on our on our entire system. It is a it is a sizable institution, and that is what I believe uh, the conversations are happening uh, behind closed doors uh, right now. Uh, you, you could imagine that uh, there's discussions on whether this bank uh, will fail or whether the uh, other banks will help uh, uh, bail out provide a private sector bailout solution to this bank. If the private if the other banks do not provide a solution. Uh, the ripple effects could could impact them in perhaps more serious ways. All right. Why is uh, First Republic in trouble? And is it similar to what happened with the other banks or is this a uh, different animal? Uh, Rob, it's, it's actually very, very similar uh, in, ter- in terms of Silicon Valley Bank on the uh, left side of the balance sheet, which is the assets. Um, or actually on the left side of the balance sheet, uh, which is the assets, there was nothing left. Uh, the asset values have declined. On the right side of the balance sheet, which is the deposits, there's nothing left. Uh, very similar circumstances uh, with, with, with First Republic Bank. And it's not just with First Republic and with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, these exposures are, are throughout our entire system at one level or another. So who or what benefits the most if and when a bank fails and is then ultimately sold off? Who benefits if it ultimately fails? I, I, nobody, nobody truly benefits. If it's a if it's a private sector solution, that means the the larger banks are are going to be subsidizing those losses, uh, which will have an impact on those banks' shareholders. It, it could be a quasi public uh, partner, a public private partnership, uh, 
uh, where both the, the public and the private share in, in the losses, or it could be a full-blown public uh, uh, bailout um, where, where we as uh, uh, taxpayers will have to bear the brunt of it. Is, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, it, probably the question is, is will, will any one of these parties uh, uh, you know, save the depositors? And that's perhaps the most important question. And I truly feel that, um, you know, there's tremendous efforts to protect not only, uh, you know, your deposits, but the faith in our deposit system. And I, I think they're, they're working hard for that. However, that being said, if I did have deposits over the uh, insured threshold, I'd have a hard time sleeping at night. So will we see uh, the end result of this uh, like we have seen before. We're going to see some bigger banks uh, gobbling up some smaller ones and and some more uh, some more conglomeration in the banking industry. I believe that's been happening since the beginning of time, Rob. So that that'll continue to happen. And what you'll also see, you'll also see some new banks forming. Um, and and this is this has uh, been happening uh, since the beginning of, of banking time. I mean, this isn't the first time, uh, at least in very recent history, we've seen bank collapses in the 80s. There were quite a few, substantially more bank collapses than we are seeing today. So uh, just from a, a, a general observation, it seems like the banking industry is more stable. But would you say there is more at risk in terms of dollars and uh, its reach, the ripple effects of a bank when it fails today versus back in the eighties when we saw it happening much more. Elsa, you're correct. I believe our, our banking system is more stable from a credit risk standpoint. I believe banks have underwritten their loans uh, uh, far better than they had in the past. So there aren't any, at this point, there aren't any credit risk issues. Uh, this is a unique issue. This is an issue where interest rates rose significantly to a point where the bank's assets, the securities, lost value due to that rising rate environment. And you can also imagine that uh, the cost for deposits have gone up. We, we've been used to deposits at 0%. Now depositors are looking for 3 4%. And if the loans that we, were, that we received at 3% fixed you know, for 20, 30 years are on the books, but the depositors are seeking 4%, you can imagine how the bank's balance sheets start to, to uh, go underwater. And what about, uh, very quickly, what about somebody like uh, uh, me and Elsa? We, we make our paycheck. Uh, we, we've got some money in the bank. We have maybe some investments here and there. But, you know, we're not, we're not wealth magnets. We're not magnates either. Uh, how concerned should we be if we've got our money in one of these banks? Uh, keep in mind the FDIC insurance goes up to $250,000 per account. Uh, and there are various ways we could have more than $250,000 within the account if you have, let's say, a joint account with your with your spouse or, uh, or there's other means as well. Uh, so I would talk with your bank and, and ask uh, if you do have any exposure and how to uh, to help you sleep better at night. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, speaking of sleeping better at night, I think that's uh, something that's coming up at some point. Uh, Dante Tosetti, a Bay Area-based banking expert in regulatory compliance, also risk management. Coming up, you might be better off staying awake than taking a specific type of sleeping. Mm. Right now, though, a lot of people are looking to buy a home in Southern California. There's a new survey from the National Multifamily Housing Council that finds the monthly cost of owning a home is now an average of $1,000 more than renting. And Kate Tolentino is president of the Pasadena Foothills Association of Realtors. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, should still uh, people still consider uh, buying? Absolutely. 
I really, truly believe that, you know, home ownership is really the, the way to go. So even even though it is a more expensive proposition than just renting, but you're 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 telling us maybe in the long term, there's a difference to be had. It could be actually short term as well. So um, I think you really need to weigh out the benefits. Um, they can both be short term and, and long term. So let's say the costs of buying, they include, you know, monthly mortgage payments, insurance, taxes and improvements and repairs. But these costs are offset by the benefits such as mortgage interest and property tax deductions and investment appreciation, which is immediate uh, and as well as long term. I know you say buying uh, ultimately really is in the long run and short term for some uh, a better option. Of course, everyone wants to feel like they own something significant they can keep or pass down to a family, whatever they choose to do. But does it also uh, ultimately depend on where you're looking? I mean, some places in the city or the county might be better to rent versus buying because of the cost. Uh, people have tough times saving right now for down payments. Is, are there places and times where renting is better than buying? That's actually um, one thing I wanted to highlight. So you do have the outskirts of, you know, L.A. County, if it's something that, you know, still makes sense for you for commuting, you know, for work such as Santa Clarita or even Inland Empire. But to highlight your point on down payment savings, um, I think it is a myth that, you know, you need the 20% in order to purchase. Um, I believe that most home buyers, um, that's really what maybe is preventing them from looking into this, where it's really um, common to have three and a half percent down as an option to purchase a home. There's loan programs such as FHA. And aside from that, there's other down payment assistance programs that actually can help you with your down payment. Some can be repaid over time and some can be a gift. Okay. So uh, it is uh, the, the numbers show a little bit more expensive, at least in outlaying uh, money uh, to to buy more than rent, but there are people who like want to continue renting, they say, because of, well, now look, it's cheaper. Uh, and also I don't have the headaches of uh, repair work that has to be done. But if somebody who is listening to you and they're renting and should they feel left out that they're not buying right now? Should they, should they get out of a good rental situation to get into uh, owning a home? I wouldn't advise to get out of a good rental situation in order to home, own home, but I would advise that they speak with a realtor, even if they're not ready at this moment, so that they have an idea of really what's you know ahead of them and they can you know plan, maneuver, and pivot what, um, as they need to in order to eventually get into a home. Um, you also have to factor in that although this is long term, you know, um, being a homeowner is really a good hedge against inflation. You know, getting into something that's more fixed over the next 30 years in long term or even as immediate as seven to 10 years, you know, that can help you knowing that you'll have the same payment and you're not susceptible to rent increases. I want to go back to the percentage when we talk about down payment because I know you said, yes, it's a lot of people, you hear that across the board. Well, you got to have 20%, and that's a big chunk, especially for houses in Southern California, uh, you know, where things start at uh, $500,000 and up, and $500,000 being on, on the more affordable end. So what is the difference between having 20% down, aside from a lower payment, uh, versus 3% down. And and would you recommend, if somebody did have the means to put 20% down, 
do that, why or why not? And why would 3% or 3.5% be okay too? Um, Great question. So to start with the higher down payment, of course, the immediate um, result of a higher down payment, of course, is a lower monthly payment. But I know plenty of um, people, uh, personal clients who do have the 20%, but opt for something lower, mainly, you know, for cash reserves. What if they want to, you know, eventually do something to the home for improvement, or they have some life changes that they want to save that money for. So they can get themselves into a lower mortgage rate if their bank allows for what we call adjustable rate mortgages, where it's a lower than your fixed rate mortgage. So that can kind of alleviate that monthly payment for you while still keeping your reserves. While if you are able to do even the three and a half percent down payment, and your debt to income ratio can cover your monthly payment, which means you can get into something that you can afford. I still say go for it because, you know, the sooner you build equity, the sooner you can recoup any investments or any cash outlay. Uh, I like to tell people, you know, when you move, when you use your down payment to purchase a home, you're not losing that money. You are, in fact, just moving it to a different vehicle. In this case, the roof over your head. All right. Kay uh, Tolentino, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, President of the Pasadena Foothills Association of Realtors. Coming up in just minutes on KNX In-Depth, a big warning about a sleep aid that could keep you up all night. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon and for Charles Feldman. The movie Rust is back in production. This uh, follows the accidental shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins in New Mexico about a year and a half ago. Of course, you heard criminal charges were just dropped against Alec Baldwin. So what happens when the movie is finally released? Here to answer that is Jackie Jordan, pop culture entertainment expert, joining us today to talk about it. So do you think Rust will ultimately do well or fail once it hits the theaters because of the scandal. I mean, after all, it is press whether or not it is negative or positive. Well, Elsa and Rob, thanks so much for having me here. I wanted to say that in typical times, I believe moviegoers would actually forget about the history, but we're not living in typical times. So I believe that moviegoers will not be standing by this film. I believe the completion of this movie is going to be deemed as insensitive across the board for both sides um, of the daily polarizing spectrum that we're living through right now. And since no accountability ultimately was established across the board for any of the filmmakers, my my prediction as a media consultant to answer your question is that the consumers will end up being the ones holding the filmmakers accountable by not showing up for the movie. Now, this this is certainly not the first movie that's going to be released after an accident on set that took somebody's life. You know, I'm thinking of uh, prompt guns actually uh, uh, killing other people that's happened before. But uh, I think one of the most uh, 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 one of the biggest cases was uh, Twilight Zone in which uh, an actor and uh, two other uh, children were killed on the set during a special effects scene that that went awry. And that's the Twilight Zone, the movie. Uh, How did that affect Twilight Zone, the movie? And of course, uh, granted, it's not the same time. Uh, it, then that it is now we didn't have social media constantly reminding people about what happened. But did you probably bring up a really great example because what was so stunning about that having had a movie accident happen where, yes, as you said, it killed a um, Dick Morrow and two child actors. Um, and John Landis was the filmmaker and Steven Spielberg was also the co-producer of the film at the time. And when the uh, charges were brought up against, the filmmakers were held accountable. And that was a really big 
deal uh, at the time was the first time that that um, an accident on the set held uh, folks, um, producers and filmmakers um, accountable. And I, you know, so that was, that was the precedent with it, but the Twilight Zone, the movie did not do well after that. It was exactly what we're talking about here with Rust. It was tainted and it, it just, it did not um, live up to it. And obviously John Landis uh, is, was, you know, went on to be a, a big filmmaker, um, you know, having done Halloween and other um, uh, big movies. And of course we know what Steven Spielberg did. And this was in 1982. So it was kind of in the height of both of their, their fame um, as we saw that happen. But, and I, but I think even today we're more sensitive to what just, happened and I just don't I was actually personally personally I was surprised not just professionally but personally I was surprised that the filmmakers went through with completing the movie because had the outcome been different and Alec Baldwin been charged and you know arrested and 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 criminally prosecuted you know the film the film probably wouldn't have been completed so it was interesting to see this as a as an opportunity to complete the film so I personally, or even as a media consultant, just don't see the consumers backing this film. You know, we'll I, know I we we talked about the charges and the case being dropped against Alec Baldwin and talk about accountability. However, uh, from what I understand, this isn't the end of the road for the legal troubles that could potentially plague him on this same issue going forward. He is not a hundred percent completely out of the woods yet. Because uh, the door was left open in the event that new information or new evidence was found that could bring him right back into the spotlight regarding um, legal consequences. If that happens, how do you think that affects the movie? Well, Elsa, that's just so interesting because it is. it just seems very peculiar that the door is still open. And then it also seems even doubly peculiar that they would continue to um, can, can finish the movie was uh, what is interesting about Alec Baldwin. Of course, we know he was the uh, the actor involved in the in the moment. He's also a co-producer of the, of the movie, and we also didn't hear much about any of the other producers that were involved in the in the making of the movie. And if you know if budgets had been appropriately spent for you know talent and crew, the original accident might not have occurred at least you would hope not um that it would have occurred and uh so it's just really interesting i i just think it it's in poor taste uh as an industry person that they even continue with 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 making the movie i i think literally i think it's just one of the situations where you just put it down all right very quickly uh if the uh the movie is completed it's released and as you say it it bombs as a result of being tainted by this the people who put up the money to make this movie the people who invested in it uh if if it loses a lot of money uh, if it bombs uh and they don't get a big return what do they do they take the tax write off or they sue or what happens I, you know, I, I think they should, I mean, to me, this is a lose-lose proposition financially at this point. So I, I would have, you know, you have to pick your lose point when it comes up. And to me, this, it would have been before finishing the movie as opposed to waiting for it to come out uh, box office because you have to finish the production, you have to do the marketing and you have to hope that it's a success. But I also think at this point, Alec Baldwin is, is too controversial uh, of a character. Uh, uh, you know, you know, when you become the story and the story is no longer the story, uh, the movie not being the fiction, then I think it's very it can be very difficult to, uh, you know, push out a very successful 
a movie at this time. All right. Thank you so much, Jackie Jordan, uh, pop culture entertainment expert. A new study from Cambridge Health Alliance has found more than two dozen melatonin gummies sold as sleep aids had potentially dangerous amounts of the very important sleep hormone in it. And with us now is uh, Dr. Alon Avedon, a neurologist, director of the UCLA Sleep Disorders Center. Thank you for, uh, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully we won't put you to sleep during the segment. Uh, <laughs> what is this uh, sleep aid? Uh, uh, why is this uh, hormone so dangerous to take too much of? Sure. So melatonin is a naturally occurring uh, hormone. We all produce melatonin in the brain. Its function is to shut down the alerting effect of the circadian clock, allowing us to fall asleep at night. Many of us uh, use melatonin as a sleep aid, and um, melatonin is is uh, considered as a dietary supplement. It's not regulated. Um, and one of the primary uh, uh, populations that this study has evaluated are the pediatric patient population. Um, in a recent uh, um, study done by the uh, CDC found over uh, a quarter of a million accidental exposure to melatonin, uh, where some uh, patients actually required ICU intubation and and a few patients died. And it just speaks to the fact that even though uh, melatonin is packaged as gummies, it doesn't mean it's safe. And the study that you're quoting uh, indicated that um, the amount of melatonin that was found to be available in these gummies was multiple times the recommended amount uh, achieving toxic levels and also included the unregulated the compounds such as CBD. Uh, we're, yes, okay, that, and that is a, a, another issue um, potentially with uh, combining a couple of things that are considered natural and not regulated by the FDA. But those are also two separate issues, the fact that a lot of vitamins and melatonins are, are sold as gummies, um, you know, and also uh, marketed towards helping your child calm down and relax before bedtime. But the other issue is I wanted to know the long-term effects of consistently using melatonin. Are there any um, time frames that are safe to use it consistently? And, and what milligrams uh, dosage would you recommend if someone does have to use it on a regular basis? Sure. So um, you, you're absolutely right. The Most of the data on melatonin shows that it's um, safe and effective in children. Um, there are no recommendations specifically on the use of melatonin as a diet, as a sleep aid. But generally speaking, as long as the amount of milligrams is kept to one to two milligrams in preschool age three to five-year-olds and maybe two to three milligrams for six to 12-year-olds and 13 to 18-year-olds may benefit from three to five milligrams. Exceeding that amount can potentially cause more problems with agitation, dizziness, drowsiness, unintended consequences that might also interfere with growth because melatonin uh, increases a stage of sleep that is a promoting more growth hormone secretion. And if you, if you interfere or if you uh, um, 
affect the physiology of the growing child, uh, you might uh, create situations where uh, endocrine effects might uh, might occur, and that might not be something to that is desirable. But for most uh, folks, say uh, particularly in in autism spectrum, autism spectrum uh, um, uh, children with this condition find uh, the parents find that this is a miracle drug for them. But we want to make sure that the recommendations are supported under the guidance of a pediatrician or someone who can monitor and evaluate a child and also look for other conditions like sleep apnea and snoring and restless legs. So I, I would say that for most folks, this is an effective treatment. You just have to worry what you're getting your hands into when you look at the milligrams and especially when it's packaged as a gummy where the uh, milligrams might actually be far exceeding what you actually would benefit from. And so a good uh, rule of thumb here would be don't take medicine in gummy form. That's because because then it becomes like candy and you take too much. Yeah. And it's because it's packaged as a candy. That's that's the dangerous message that um, gummies are, 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 are not candy. Gummies are especially if they contain a melatonin and other compounds, <clears throat> they can be quite, uh, they, they can have des- undesirable effects and sometimes create a situation where what the amount of uh, melatonin that you're taking is far more than you need physiologically. And the fact that they also package CBD, that that is not something that uh, we in the sleep community take for granted because we don't understand the effects of CBD on sleep as, as of yet. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much to Dr. Alon Avedon, neurologist, director of the UCLA Sleep Disorders Center. Uh, I think we learned uh, the good rule of thumb here. Uh, medicine and gummies, don't do it. Uh, take 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 the old fashioned pills. Yeah, it tastes bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that t- yeah, yeah. tastes bad. But you know, keep the gummies at the store. Yeah. All right. That's it for KNX in depth today. We're going to do this again tomorrow, but with different topics.